We come now in this session to the next attribute of God, which is the omnipotence of God, which means that God is all-powerful. Every one of these attributes of God is like the bright outshining of the greatness of God. Every attribute is another shaft of light that is beaming out of heaven, revealing the awesome greatness of who our God is. That certainly is the case with this attribute on the omnipotence of God. What an encouragement this should be to us in our prayers, that there is nothing that is impossible to God. There is nothing too hard for God. Let us bring our petitions and lay them before the throne of grace because He is so powerful. And as we will see in one of our future sessions, and He is so wise and He is so loving. I want us to consider now the omnipotence of God, which means that God possesses all power. Just contemplate that for a moment. All power. That means even what little tiny power you and I have in a temporal nature has been delegated to us from God. There's a sense in which God does not even have to take our life. He just stops giving it. Think about this even as it relates to Satan. What little power the devil has. And even that is from God. Martin Luther said the devil is God's devil to carry out God's purposes. Even in the little power that God has allotted... Nothing is impossible to God. Nothing is even hard to God. One of his Old Testament names is El Shaddai. El, E-L, means God. Shaddai means Almighty. His very name reveals to us this attribute, this, this character quality of God, that He is the Almighty God. He is the possessor of all strength, and what power belongs to us, His creatures, is simply on loan from Him because all power is from God. A.W. Tozier writes, since God has at His command all the power in the universe, the Lord God omnipotent can do anything as easily as He can do anything else. All of His acts are done without effort. He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for a renewal of strength. All the power required to do all that he wills lies in him in undiminished fullness. Close quote. What a great God we have. What a great God Well, as we consider now the omnipotence of God, I want to give you five categories with which we will think through the omnipotence of God. First, He has infinite power. Just ponder that. Infinite power, unlimited power, boundless power, He is all-powerful, therefore He is able to do whatever He pleases. There are many things that you and I desire to do, 
we just don't have the strength to do it. We just don't have the ability to carry it out. We would say, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Not with God. Every desire, he has unlimited power with which to carry it out. As we think of this, think of his power in creation. Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Consider this in creation. Consider the size of the universe he has created, the sheer dimensions of which are staggering. Scientists tell us that it would take 500 billion years to journey around his perimeter, traveling at the speed of light. That's 186,000 miles per second. The sun has a diameter of 864,000 miles and can hold over 1 million planets the size of the earth. One star has a diameter of 100 million miles, larger than the earth's orbit around the sun. It takes sunlight traveling at the speed of light about eight and a half minutes to reach the earth. Yet that same light would take more than four years to reach the nearest star. That is some 24 trillion miles from the earth. All of this just is a testimony to the staggering power of God in creation. Nothing that we would ever bring before His throne of grace is hard for God to do. He has spoken it all into existence by the mere breath of His Word. He has infinite power. He does everything effortlessly, not by the sweat of His brow, not by the perspiration of His forehead, but by the mere breath of His mouth. Jeremiah 32 Verse 17, Ah, Lord, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. God, if you can do that, what are needs in my little life? I just need some strength to get through the day. I just need help to face this trial. Is God sufficient? Is God able? Does He have power? Behold the heavens and the earth and see that nothing is impossible or difficult for God. Matthew 19, verse 26, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In the context, the context here is how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, it's more than hard. It's impossible by his efforts and by his strength. And I want to be quick to add, it's impossible for a poor man to be saved by his own efforts and by his own strength. But with God, nothing is impossible. No one is too hard for God to save. He can save the chief of sinners. He can break open the hardest heart. He can cause blind eyes to see the truth. He can cause deaf ears to hear the call of the Good Shepherd to come to Him. There is no one beyond the outstretched hand and arms of God to save. 
How encouraged we should be by this as we pray for loved ones to come to faith in Christ. No one is too hard for God to save. My father-in-law, if there was anyone that I thought would not be saved, it it would be my father-in-law. So resistant, so hardened to the gospel, so resistant to me, to my wife at times. Three days before he died, knowing that I would perform his funeral, thinking that would be the saddest day in all of our lives, this almighty God, this God of all grace and all power reached down into that hospital bed and pried open that proud heart and saved him to make him a trophy of his grace. And a few days later, when I did that funeral over here in Tampa, Florida, what was going to be the saddest day of my life became the happiest day or one of the happiest days of our lives because nothing is impossible to God. How we should pray for our lost loved ones, how we should pray for our nation, how we should pray for our president, how we should intercede knowing that every petition before the throne of God, He is more than adequate, He is more than sufficient. He can overcome any and every obstacle that would hinder the carrying forth of His sovereign will and His purposes in this generation. He has infinite power. Did you hear that? He has infinite power. Second, He has irresistible power. His power is invincible. It is unconquerable. If God were a football team, we would say He's undefeated. No one can resist God. No one can defeat God. All of His purposes are moving forward. Sometimes I hear people say something moronic like this. God votes for you, and the devil votes against you, and you have the deciding vote. Can you imagine anything more inane than that? As though... God has some power, and the devil has some power, and it's a tug-of-war, and it's a standoff, and neither can gain ground on the other. So you and I have a choice. We need to come and get behind either God or Satan and win the day. It will be our strength that will jerk the rope in one direction and win the day. Let me tell you, God is so omnipotent. If the whole world was on the other side of that tug of war, and if Satan and all of the demons in and out of hell were all on that other side of the rope, and only God was on this side of the rope, God could but sneeze and win the day. He is triumphant. He is invincible. He is unconquerable with the power that God has. Job 42, verse 2 Job said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's a pretty good lesson to learn, is it not? No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 14, verse 27, For the Lord of hosts has planned. Who can frustrate it? It's a rhetorical question. The answer of which, again, is 
no one, not even everyone, can frustrate it. And as for his outstretched hand, who can turn it back? Who's going to slap God's hand and, and turn it back? No, he is the God of might and of all power. Isaiah 43, verse 13 Even from eternity, I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? No one. How awesome is the power of God to carry forward His purposes in history as well as in our own lives. He has infinite power. He has irresistible power. He has inexhaustible power. God's power is undiminished. From everlasting to everlasting, His power is the same. God is not growing tired. God is not growing old. It's not as though... You know, God just can't do what He used to could do. Look back at the Old Testament. Look at all these great things that God did. Now look at the church. Maybe God is growing old. Maybe God is not able to do what He once could do. Listen, that is blasphemy. God is forever the same. His power is, is undiminished. He loses none of His omnipotence. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Let us hear this text again. Do you not know? That implies there are times when we forget this. There are times when we act as though we do not know this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. He goes on to say to those of us to whom he increases his power in our lives that we are able to rise up with wings like eagles. We can run and not grow weary. We can walk and not become tired. Now God's power is inexhaustible. And He gives power to the weak. When I went off to college a million years ago, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I played football. And when it came my senior year, I was given a football scholarship to Texas Tech University, which was way out in West Texas. And... This is before cell phones. This is before, I think, television. I mean, this is way back there. And I remember being out there all by myself. There's one little payphone down at the end of the hall. And, you know, once a decade, maybe you would call home. And, and I latched onto a verse, and I had this verse put up over my bed in my dorm room, such that every night when I went to sleep, I would stare this verse right in front of me. I'd wake up in the morning, I would see this, I would, 
I would head off to football practice. I would come back. I'd be so tired. I'd be beaten. I'd be bloodied. I would see this verse, and this verse would just pull me up by the lapels. It would just breathe strength into me. It's Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now listen, that's not a name-it-claim-it theology. That's not some prosperity verse. I can do all things through Christ. I can do all things within the will of God. I can do all things that glorify His name. I can do all things in obedience to His Word. I can do all things that God calls me to do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This this infinite, inexhaustible power is mediated into our lives as we are weak. And as we look to Him and as we trust Him, He enables us to exchange our weakness for His strength and the power of the Holy Spirit within us, and the power of the Word of God, and the power of the knowledge of God, it enables us, it energizes us, it employs us to do God's work, God's way, for God's glory. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, God has power for you to do it. It is inexhaustible power. Listen to Psalm 102. Verses 25 and following, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. That is saying God's power is the same from age to age, from generation to generation. And He stands ready to come alongside of His people and to impart His power to enable us to do His will for His glory. We can't, but He can in us and through us. Number four, His power is incomprehensible power. It is so infinite and so vast that it simply cannot be comprehended by us. Omnipotence is past our finding out. We cannot even imagine how powerful God is. Whatever are your highest, grandest, loftiest thoughts of how powerful God is, it still falls short of the reality of His omnipotence. Ephesians 3 verse 20 is a signature text. This is a text that ought to make us just rise up and be so encouraged. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. It's just layer upon layer upon layer, able to do more, far more, 
far more abundantly, far more abundantly beyond all that we ask, far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. We can't even think of the fullness of His omnipotence according to the power that works within us. That is the summary of Ephesians 1 through 3, and that is the summary of the power of God in salvation. To be able to raise those who are dead in trespasses and sins, to be made alive by His sovereign regenerating grace, to raise us up and make us alive in Christ, give us the gifts of repentance and faith, call us unto Himself, open our blind eyes, take out our heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh. This is the exceeding abundantly, beyond all that we can ask or think, saving power of God. It is incomprehensible. And finally, I would tell you it's self-consistent power. That is to say... God's power works in perfect conformity with all of His other attributes. God's power will only work in perfect coordination with His sovereignty. It will only work in perfect coordination with His wisdom. It will only work perfectly in coordination with His love, His grace, His mercy. We ask the question, are there some things that God cannot do? Yes, there are some things that God cannot do. God cannot act inconsistent with His own character. God cannot die. God cannot lie. Titus 1, 2, Hebrews 6, verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. Yes, there are some things that God cannot do. There are many things that God cannot do that would be inconsistent with His other attributes. So His power works in perfect conformity with His sovereign will, with His perfect wisdom, with His amazing grace. This is the omnipotence of God. Let us be encouraged. Let us be strengthened as we consider the greatness of His power. No prayer request is beyond His ability to Answer it, accept it, measure in with His perfect will. And there is found in our weakness perfect strength to do everything that is within the will of God that He calls us to do. Sometimes we say, I just don't think I can do this. Yes, you can. In the power of God's strength, if in fact He has called you to do it. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We come now in this session to the holiness of God. Uh, If there is a truth that has been taught in this ministry at Ligonier, it is this, this great truth on the holiness of God. There is only one attribute of God that is being declared around the throne day and night, day and night, that is being raised to the superlative degree, and that is the holiness of God. As you know, the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. 
To raise something to the superlative degree, one would repeat it three times. And in reality, what the angels are saying is that God is holy. He is holier than any of His works and any of His creatures. But more than that, He is the holiest of all beings. That He is elevated to the very highest level of holiness. He Himself is perfectly holy. This attribute is uniquely singled out by being repeated again and again. The angels are not crying out, love, 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 although God is love, as we will see in a future lesson. The angels are not crying out, truth, 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 although unmistakably, God is truth. Nor are they crying out, wrath, 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 although God is a God of vengeance and judgment. Instead, what the angels are crying out is, holy, holy, holy. I think we can say that more than any other attribute, God is identified in heaven by His holiness. Everything about God is holy. His Son is His holy Son. His Spirit is the Holy Spirit. His Word is the Holy Bible. His temple is the holy temple. His mount is the holy Mount Zion. The land that He gave to His people is the holy land. Everything about God, the Alpha and the Omega, it is marked by His holiness. So what does the word holy mean as it relates to God? What does this signify when the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy? Well, there are two primary meanings, two distinct meanings regarding the holiness of God. I say two primary meanings. Really, one is primary, the other is secondary. So I want us to begin with the primary meaning of the holiness of God. This means that God is separated above His creation. The word holy simply means to separate, to cut, to cut something in two so that the two sides are now distant and removed. The holiness of God means that God is set apart from His creation, that He is separated above His creation. We're not on His level. He is on a level distinctly and infinitely above us. Holiness means that God is elevated above us. He is distinct from us. He is superior to us. He is a cut above us. He is wholly other than us. This is the idea of holiness. And interwoven with this is that He is high and lifted up, that God is transcendent, that God is exalted in glory far above us, that God is supreme in His greatness compared to all of the works of His hands. There is the idea of royalty and dignity 
of this splendor of God in His holiness. He is majestic as He is elevated above us. He is robed in regal splendor. He is dazzling in His kingly glory. This is what it means for God to be holy. We are merely pedestrian compared to this exalted God. Exodus 15 verse 11 is one of the first verses to use this word holy and combines with it this idea of kingly majesty as though He is far above us and robed in splendor. Exodus 15 11 says, "'Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you?' Listen to this now. "'Majestic in holiness.'" awesome in praises, working wonders. This is to say that God in His exalted holiness is awe-inspiring. We cannot look upon God in His holiness and yawn and be bored. Then we didn't see Him because God in His holiness is stunning. He is staggering breathtaking, so magnificent in the beauty of His holiness that it is mind-boggling to mere creatures to gaze upon His attributes and to contemplate the majesty that belongs to Him alone. We say today in addressing the Queen of England, for example, we address her as Your Majesty as she is in her palace or in her castle as she is surrounded by attendants and and she is attired in royal robes. Infinitely more so is God, dressed in glory, enthroned in splendor. 1 Samuel 2 verse 2 says, There is no one holy like the Lord. In other words, His holiness is so far removed from us that there is no comparison that can be made to God. He is incomparable in His holiness. Indeed, there is no one like you. He is entirely unique. He is so high and exalted, so majestic. Psalm 22 verse 3 combines this idea of the holiness of God and being enthroned in majesty. It says, you are holy, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Again, this idea that holiness represents the exaltation and the magnification and the enthronement of God being high and lifted up. In this sense, it touches upon the idea even of His sovereignty, that He is supreme in His glory. The signature text on this truth is Isaiah chapter 6. I'll never forget picking up that book by a man I did not know at that time, R.C. Sproul, many, many years ago, The Holiness of God. I remember opening that book and just being mesmerized chapter by chapter 
as he unfolded especially this scene in Isaiah chapter 6. I remember at that time I was looking to pursue my doctorate and and I decided wherever this man is teaching, that's where I'm going to go to school. I'm just glad it was in the United States and, it, and, and on this planet, or I would have had to have gone to another planet, I guess, to, to sit at his feet. But the way that he unfolded this text was jaw-dropping for me. It, it was knee-bending for me. It was heart-enlarging for me, as I was overwhelmed, as I had never been before, by the sheer awesome holiness of God. Isaiah 6, verse 1, you know the text, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. King Uzziah had ruled over Israel for some 52 years, the boy king, age 16, assuming the throne, and for most of his reign, he reigned in, and ruled in prosperity and advancement of the nation. And you recall how he became drunk with his own power and became blinded by his arrogant pride, and he stormed into the temple, and, and despite the protests of the priests, he barged in where he was forbidden to enter, and God struck him with leprosy. And when he died, it was jolting for the nation. It was in that crisis that Isaiah entered into a place to seek God. He turned to God. And it was in that experience that he saw the Lord. He was given a vision of the true king. Israel's throne was now vacant. And Isaiah sees the true king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, none other than God himself. And how did he see God? He saw God in the towering, transcendent majesty of his holiness. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He is seated in that He is actively presiding as the sovereign Lord of history, the one who removes kings, the one who has removed this king, the one who will raise up His successor. I saw Him sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, towering above, towering in His transcendence. And then He says, with the train of his robe filling the temple. The greatness of a king, as you know, was measured in part by the length of his train. The greater the king, the longer the train. This king is so majestic and so sovereign that the entire throne room is filled up with his train. There is no room for any rival, no room for any competitor He is the one and only dominant sovereign over history and over mankind. And as he peers into this heavenly scene, seraphim, the word means burning ones, 
They are burning in their passion for God, burning in their intensity for God. Those who are closest to God are most on fire for God. You cannot be in the presence of God and be unaffected by the awesomeness of who God is. And the closer they draw as they are in the immediate presence of this high and lifted up God, they are intensified with passion and devotion and energy to serve this God. There is no lackadaisical spirit here. There is no casual worship here. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, sensing their complete unworthiness to even be in the presence of such an infinitely holy God. They cover their face, unable to even look directly into the blazing light of His resplendent glory. And with two, He covered His feet. As Moses covered His feet as He stepped onto holy ground, signifying that a servant is unworthy to be in the presence of their master. And with two, He flew, eagerly, ready to be dispatched from the throne. Those wings, those two wings flying, ready to be commissioned and to dart off into the universe and to carry out the will and the work of God. They are sitting on ready to do the bidding of this holy God. And one called out to another. This antiphonal worship canoping over the throne of God. Holy, holy Holy is the Lord of hosts. And then the other side responding, the whole earth is full of His glory. Declaring His holiness, they like royal attendants and kingly servants around the throne in this stately court declaring the holiness of this king who is seated upon His throne. Holy, holier, holiest, separated, more separated, most separated, holy other than us, a gaping chasm separating holy God from His creatures. And the revelation and the shining forth And the manifestation of this holiness, as it comes down from heaven, the whole earth is full of His glory. Glory is the revelation of His holiness. What a scene this is. And you'll recall how as this passage unfolds, the foundations of the thresholds were trembling at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. This whole heavenly scene is like a a volcanic eruption as there is a, a shaking and a moving in the presence of such a holy God. And Isaiah says, Woe is me. Judged is me. Damned is me. Cursed is me to be in the presence of such an infinitely holy God.
Isaiah was not comparing himself to anyone else in his day or in his time and assuming I'm a little bit better than this person or that person. He was measuring himself against the standard of God's infinitely, absolutely perfect holiness. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I I am undone. I am disintegrating and coming apart from the inside. I'm unraveling like a cheap sweater in the presence of this God, for I'm a man of unclean lips. We would say, Isaiah, that's the best part about you. You're a prophet. Your lips, they speak the Word of God. You are the trumpet of God, the voice of God upon the earth. I'm a man of unclean lips, because I'm a man with an unclean heart, and my lips simply speak out of the depths of my heart, and I live among a people of unclean lips. How do you know this, Isaiah? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It is a devastating experience, to gaze upon the holiness of God. It melts us down. It shakes us down. You remember when Peter recognized after the miraculous catch of fish that he was standing in the presence of holy God. He said, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. You remember John on the island of Patmos, he heard that voice speaking behind him and he turned to see the one who was speaking to him and he saw the glorified Christ in his holiness. And verse 17 says, he fell at his feet like a dead man. You know what that means? He just fainted. He went unconscious. He... he, suddenly lost his senses to even look upon the holiness of God. If God were to appear in this room in His holiness, we would all just go unconscious. We wouldn't be able to bear it up. That is why when we go to heaven, we have to have a glorified body with glorified eyes to even be able to look upon this holy, awesome, glorified God in heaven, or we would burn up like a cinder in His very presence. This is the primary meaning of the holiness of God. And the church has always been strongest when it's had its highest regard for the holiness of God. And those times and epochs when the church has been weakest has been those times when it has lost a sense of the vertical holiness of God and want to bring God down to our level and everything is a horizontal type relationship with God. That is when the church has been the weakest, if not even unregenerate. The primary meaning is His transcendent, awesome glory.
The secondary meaning, and I have but seconds to tell you this, is his moral perfection, his moral excellencies, that he is sinless, he is without moral blemish, he is flawless in all of his ways. All of his decisions are perfect. All of his judgments are perfect. All of his decrees are holy and perfect. Everything about this great God is holy and perfect. Therefore, he can take no pleasure in unrighteousness. There is a moral revolt within him whenever he beholds sin and wickedness and iniquity. The Scripture says that the Lord is in His holy temple. His eyes behold and test the sons of men. The one who loves violence, his soul hates. In Psalm 5, we read, You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. This is because He is an infinitely holy God. He cannot be neutral towards sin. He is holy. And He loves righteousness. He delights in purity and moral conformity to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our God. He is awesome in His holiness. And there is a separation between Him and us that shall forever be there. And even in heaven, there will remain a separation between His throne and us as the blood-washed redeemed of all of the ages. He will forever be holy God, distinct and unto Himself.